You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. Excited. Advent's one of my favorite times of the year. I love the liturgical calendar because it helps us connect the present stories and our present moment with the ancient stories and the old moments. And there's just this beautiful interweaving of the two. And we're doing something a little bit different as we enter into that story of anticipating Christ, of God with us, of waiting on that inbreaking moment of Emmanuel and realizing that we do live on the other side of the prophet's promise. Emmanuel is with us. Emmanuel has come. God is present here in this place right now at this very moment with each one of us. And yet we're still waiting for that fruition, right? We're still waiting for what Jesus started to actually end, to be complete. We're waiting for God to take everything that he initiated, his heart, his kingdom, his goodness, restoration, wholeness, justice, all of it. We're still waiting for the end point of that, right? Because we see the pieces on the way where it just reminds us that it's not quite finished yet. And yet God desires that we would know that as we wait, as we hunger, as we long for him, that we're not alone in our Advent moments today, right? Israel was waiting and they were dependent on the prophet's promises and they went through that really long season of silence and it was hard for them to maintain hope and to keep leaning into the promise because it felt like things were just empty. They weren't sure where God was. They hadn't heard from him recently, but we live on the other side of the promise. So while we wait for God's fullness to come, while we wait to see what he started completed in the sense that Jesus finished it on the cross and then we see it finished on earth and we see all of that wrapped up and and complete the way it should be with restoration. We are not alone in that. God is with us. And that means that we have access to somebody 24 7 even in the moments where you feel you're most alone you're most isolated you're most overlooked you're most anxious you're most depressed you're most confused even your most joyful (laughs) we are never alone in any of those moments god is with us we are loved in that moment i want to read the first part of first john 4 9 again god showed how much he loved us by sending by sending his one and only son, Jesus, into the world that we might have eternal life through him. Christmas is that gift of proximity and presence where we never have to walk a moment on this earth alone, ever. And as followers of Jesus, sometimes we forget that and we revert back to old behavior when we do feel alone. We revert back to old coping or we just get stuck in a mindset or a mentality where we have the world on our shoulders and we're the only ones carrying it. And God says, you don't have to live like that. In fact, the only way I think we can truly be people of peace and hope and love and joy is when we let God shoulder the burdens of what we're carrying as we walk day to day. And so we're practicing that. We're using our five senses this Advent to help us connect with God's presence in our midst in a very real, tangible, visceral, sensory sort of way where we're saying, God, if you are real and we know that you are, we can see you, taste you, touch you, feel you, smell you. And learning how to do that because that feels weird to us and yet God is with us and so there are ways that we can connect our sensory experiences which help things feel real 
to the reality of God with us and we can begin to feel and see and recognize his presence and that sustains us well beyond Advent, well into not just the new year, but all of the days that we walk on this earth. And so let's just start out with a quick, a quick activity before we jump into taste, which is today. You have a red piece of paper right on your seat or hopefully on a seat nearby you and a pen in front of you. And I would love to ask you a question this morning that you can just jot your answer down on that paper. But as we are waiting for that second advent of Christ, who in your life are you desperate to see experience God's great big love for themselves? Dan pilfered the front front row. Who, and online, you can jot this into the comments if you're comfortable, but who are you desperate in your life to see experience God's great big love? Write it down on that piece of paper. We're going to put it, again, these are, every Sunday we're starting with a Christmas present to Jesus, and we're going to put it in the manger at the end of our service, but God's great big love didn't just come for us. We want to be constantly asking him, Lord, who can I show your great big love too? Being aware of them, in tune with them. What? You can put as many names as you want on that paper. Just your favorites. And everyone's like, we're done. We're just going to stop right here because that's as far as we got today. I'll give you a moment when I see more eyes than the top of people's heads. We'll move on. <laughs> All right starting to see eyeballs again so that's a good sign that you're wrapping up let's pray at the end of service you can put that as a offering to jesus right over here in the manger so wrap it up nice and tight no one looks at them so feel free to put as much or as many details on there as you want but jesus we are so so hungry for you we're anticipating you we know that you're here so god would you open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to not just know that you're real, but to really experience you with us today, especially through taste, Lord. Open up our taste buds in Jesus' name. Amen. Taste is both the one sense that I least looked forward to talking about, because if you talk about tasting God, that seems weird, right? Normally, we don't walk around licking people. Like, <laughs> You guys have been so serious when we start these messages. And I'm like, guys, we have to acknowledge that some of these things, these concepts are strange. If I said, you don't go eat people, you'd be like, that's not, that's frowned upon. Like, I think that there's a law, many laws against that. And so taste is an interesting one to say, hey, guess what? I think we can taste God. Um, and then you're like, all right, well, let's see if there's something to that that'll help us get from beyond that weirdness to something real and biblical. But before we get into that, we are going to do the science of taste. I love this part. I think it's a lot of fun every week. Taste functions on three kind of core levels. If you are a taste scientist, you probably know way more than I do. But basically, for our purposes this morning, taste functions on three levels. The first is survival, right? We need our sense of taste. It's integral to us being able to live as people, we have receptors. Johanna's going to pop this cool picture up behind me. We have five 
taste receptors, basically. They said there's like five more that they may add, which seems like a lot for one tongue. But, you know, we've got uh, sweet and sour and salty and bitter and umami or acidic, which happens to be the biggest. And for the most part, these taste receptors, which we tend to call taste buds, are located in really specific parts of your tongue or zones on your tongue. Um, and what their purpose is, is you ingest something, a drink, a food, whatever, and as the molecules from that thing connect with your taste buds, apparently they look like little fingers, which is so weird, right? Your, ha- your tongue has like little hands on it that connect with these molecules, which is so weird. I know, it's strange. I loved it. I was reading it and I was like, this is fascinating. Um, what it does is that molecule, that taste bud sends the information from that molecule back to your brain. And your brain makes an immediate, like a very quick decision to say, oh, this is either safe, let's eat it, or this is not edible, like dirt, please don't eat it, spit it out, or this seems chemical or, or dangerous, and it, it, you have a gag reflex for a reason. If, if you're trying to override it, like all of those really unfortunate things that people are doing on TikTok, which I don't advocate any of those, Tide Pods or NyQuil, um, hopefully your body will throw up. If you don't know, that's even better, but it also makes you old, Jen, so sorry. Uh, we are not of the generation. Pretty sure the lady that did NyQuil chicken was easily in her 30s, and I was like, shame on you. Um, but your body needs to know if what you've put into it is safe. And if it does deem that it is safe, even if it's not super tasty, so like you have the option between kale and carbs, and your body's like, both of these are edible. One may be preferable, but both of these are edible. Um, your brain is going to reward you because you need to eat to survive. Food is essential to your survival. So the moment you ingest something edible, your brain is going to release some form of hormones that's going to tell your body, yay, you did a good thing, so that you keep doing that good thing. You keep eating. You don't just let yourself starve into oblivion. But the second piece to that is, um, what's going on with my computer? The second piece is beyond just survival. Because our taste buds also allow us to this, experience this level of enjoyment with a necessary daily task. So you're saying, I have to eat to survive. It's part of my everyday reality. Maybe you don't even like food all that much, but our taste buds allow us to find things that actually are somewhat enjoyable so that the experience isn't entirely utilitarian, right? How many of you like to eat at least a couple things? Like you have a few favorite foods out there that no matter what, you're probably going to ingest them. Yeah, and that's a good thing because it takes a chore and it puts some delight back into it. Um, But the interesting thing that I found about enjoyment in food is that our taste buds are actually deeply genetic, which is why the same things that taste really good to you may not taste good to your parents, siblings, children, best friends. So we're going to tag the age-old cilantro debate. How many of you think cilantro is delicious and should be added to many foods? So that's like about half the room. How many of you think cilantro is disgusting and it tastes like soap? I'm part of that crew, even though I raised my hand for the first. I I pick it out of the plate. When I go and get it in salsa, I will carefully, delicately pick it out. I don't know why, but cilantro, it's genetic. It's not like we're, and this is really important to hear if you do work with people or kids, they're not being inherently picky or difficult. 
And this could be true for you too. Somebody may have said, you're a really picky kid. And as you grew up, you're really not. Your taste buds are genetically wired, which means if somebody doesn't like the things that you like, give them grace. Dan, you rock on with those jelly deals. I'm not going to touch them with a 10-foot pole. And if you don't know what we're talking about, you need to go back to Dan's What's Up Wednesday when, when he was back home in England and watch him enjoy a whole cup full of these jelly deals. So you've got taste that helps you survive, taste that helps you enjoy food, maybe not the same food as your neighbor, but at least things that will bring some delight and some, some pleasure to something that would otherwise just be very essential. But then at its deepest and most meaningful level, and where I want to park us today, is the reality that taste can serve as a sensory tool that goes to a place of comfort. Because taste can actually help us establish connections with people and places that feed our deepest emotional and relational needs, which tend to kind of rotate around feeling wanted and secure and safe and loved and included. And we don't think of it that way. I'm sure if I said taste this morning, none of you immediately went to, yes, taste is how I found and discovered that person that makes me feel safe. But the reality is taste as a sensory experience can do just that. And it's really important that we begin to unpack that because I think it helps us to understand how to taste God. So you can pop up the Norman Rockwell picture, uh, the big turkey. It wasn't as feasty as I somehow remembered in my mind before I looked it up for the PowerPoint. But I want to ask you this morning, what are your three favorite comfort foods? And rather than just shouting them back to me, you've got somebody in close proximity to you. Tell that person. Top three comfort foods. I should have been listening better to hear what you all said because I would know where to go hang out later tonight because it's snowing. We tend to make comfort foods on days where we feel like we're going to be trapped inside. Um, but it's interesting. I'm going to gather you all back and then you'll get to talk some more. Don't worry. I know we like to, I li we don't like to monologue here. We like that back and forth. But uh, comfort foods are actually not usually the foods that give us the greatest hormone boosts. Carbs give us so much serotonin. That's why everybody loves them. That's why people on keto are miserable um, because serotonin is a really powerful hormone release in our body. It's why it tastes so good to us is because it, it shoots your brain full of all these things. But comfort foods are not usually the foods we ingest that give us the greatest hormonal releases. The reason that they're comfort foods is because these taste experiences, these foods, these sensory ingestibles are things that have connected us to people and places where we felt loved and secure and included, where we knew we could just like be ourselves entirely. There are moments in our lives where we realize that taste helped us to discover some type of access point to someone that fed not just our body, but these really deep soul longings that we all have. And because it happened repetitively, that became a comfort food. And this is why we tend to crave our comfort foods, which most of us may not realize, at times when we're feeling ill or if we're, if we're feeling homesick or lonely or England loses in the World Cup and we need to... Hey, Susanna texted me that last night and I said she doesn't even know. But 
Dan wasn't feeling happy, so Susanna ordered, literally, she said, I just ordered comfort food from Soul in a Bowl. And I'm like, ah, what a perfect example of that. But that's the reality. Like, when we are feeling our most vulnerable, our most anxious, our most internally upset or sick, we feel we need something that's not just going to nourish our body, but we're looking for soul nourishment. We're looking for an anchor point. Right? We're looking for something that'll help us feel grounded again as a human being that says, I'm not just lost in the middle of the wilderness. Um, I was joking, if any of you come from an Italian family, you'll appreciate this. My grandmother lives in Syracuse, and I go out there for work frequently enough. And if I say, hey, Graham, I'm going to swing by at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon after a meeting for a couple hours before I head back to Albany, I inevitably will show up at her house doesn't matter that she's 91 years old. There will be a meal prepared. Three meals. There will be enough to bring home. It doesn't matter that it's the middle of the afternoon. None of that. She'll be like, I got some ziti and here's some bread and I made a salad. And, and the fridge is fully stocked, so there's always more to access there. But I laugh because it's not even a specific food, but it's a place and it's a person where I feel so deeply loved and connected that I just know... I'm safe. I'm wanted. I, I just show up and I, there's a meal prepared for me. And we all have those places, those people, those things um, for, well, I can't say it was the jelly deals, but I laugh when people move here. We've got lots of folks in our congregation from other countries. And one of the things that we get homesick for is our comfort foods because you just, you, you're disconnected from them here, and so there's a longing or a desire, and usually for the people who also are associated with those. The shadow side of taste also confirms this reality. How, how many of us have had a bad food experience where we ate something and we immediately felt sick, or we had a bad relational situation, like you ate it and then, you know, you're you had a big fight with somebody, and you have never eaten that food since. How many of you have some, like, very normal foods on your I will never eat that list? Like, soup, yes. Squash, yeah, normal food. And you're like, I'm never touching it ever again. If, if there tends to be stomach sickness, that immediately is like, nope, your body just has a mental block there where you're not going to go. Yeah. It's so strange, but the reality is God has wired our sense of taste to not just seek out adequate bodily nourishment, so not just to feed our bodies, but to also be able to feed our souls. He's given us sensory taste experiences that help us find people and places where we feel seen and heard and wanted, and it nourishes that longing that we all have that we shouldn't reject. Those are good soul longings that every human being has. And so it should come as no surprise to us at all that God also desires to meet us with taste. He also desires to meet us with taste. God loves connecting with people over food. If you, I like to eat, okay? And so one of my favorite images in the Bible is how many times God talks about eating. There are a lot of feasts, picnics, Hangouts over a fire where the Lord, in some fashion of himself, is there eating with people. Sometimes they're small and intimate meals, like God eating some lamb or mutton or something with, with Abraham, and they've just hung out in the wilderness together in Genesis 18. Or Jesus, 
I love that he comes back from the tomb. He rises, says hi to Martha or to Mary, and the he's like, "Yeah, I'm alive. Go tell your friends." And then he zips over himself to the shore. And what does he do for his disciples? They're out fishing in the middle of the night, and he cooks them breakfast. God loves to connect with people over food. Um, sometimes he has really big, loud dinner parties, like when he goes and hangs out with Zacchaeus or he goes to the Pharisees' houses or some of the things that he talks about in the future in heaven where he says, I'm going to just have feast tables. And so there's this idea of like a giant, giant dinner party. Um, and other times they're so important that he requires that, that be, they be part of a monthly or an annual, rather, calendar for Israel. So if you know anyone who's Jewish, there are still mandatory feast days that are built into their religious calendar that they celebrate and participate in because God loves connecting with us over food. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. I just want to give you guys a couple minutes like, or a minute, just shout them back to me. What foods can you imagine on God's feast table? Chinese, rice, rice, <laughs> fish, chocolate moose cake. <laughs> Bread, <laughs> wine, lobster. Come on, use. What do you think? Yeah, Lucas. Ham. Hey, why not? That would. <laughs> when that sheet came down in front of Peter, every food was on it. <laughs> cheese, mac and cheese. I feel like God, there probably is everything. I'm excited. There's a new Filipino restaurant around the corner, and I'm excited to head down there and like this week and get some lunch. So even like all the things we're so used to and comfortable with, imagine every food that every culture has ever created will be on that table. That's going to be the sensory experience, the comfortability of being at a table, because God knows that the table isn't just, again, a place where we get bodily nourishment, but it's a place where we get soul nourishment, where we can look across the, the way and see another human being who cares about us. That's why I have such a deep um, appreciation for Thanksgiving and why we gather anyone who doesn't have a place to be, because I think everyone belongs at Thanksgiving, aside from the very unfortunate historical reality of where it came from. We can redeem it today by inviting people around the table and making sure that the world knows that God has deemed them as worthy. And the table is one of the best places to experience that. I don't know why, it just is. One of the easiest ways for us to feel seen and heard by someone is to be invited to their dinner table and for them to take the time to prepare something for us. And I think that this is why God, knowing all of this, he's the one that wired us, he created us. He describes himself as varying points throughout the scripture as being like bread or honey or solid food. I have, I think, seven or eight texts written down in both the Old and the New Testament where, where God describes himself as not just God, but as nourishment for our bodies. He is sweet like honey. He feeds our souls. He is the water that keeps us from thirsting forever. God says, I came that you may experience me as that person who will provide the deepest, most consistent soul nourishment above anyone and anything else. 
Because what humans do for us, we talked about that right at the beginning of our service, is even when we find people that help us feel safe and included and wanted, that's not perfect, right? There are times when those people still disappoint us or let us down or mess up. And it's not even, it just is, right? That's just humanity. We've let down and disappoint people all the time. My email tells me that I do that frequently, so it's fine. Um, we are imperfect in our ability to love. We're imperfect in our ability to nourish people. And we're not actually called to be the ones that do that perfectly because God alone is the one who can perfectly nourish us. He is the one we can go to who will never take back his affirmation that we are loved, welcomed, seen, heard. He validates us. He, he is so perfectly aware of and loving us consistently at all times. And so the biggest thing that we have this morning as we're, as we're working through our senses is we need to be able to be people who know what it's like to experience God through taste so that he can become that person for us. He can become that anchor for us when other people fail us. So that when you're saying, oh, I'm so lonely and I don't know who to turn to because everyone's let me down, God has never let me down. Or I'm so scared about this thing or I'm so whatever emotion, fill it in, we know God has determined, deemed, has been, he's proven himself to be perfectly consistent, perfectly loving, and perfectly present for us at all times. Amen. And so how do we experience that through taste? This is the real, this is where, oh, you have an idea. Yeah, let me hear it. Yes, that's great. By the things we feel most comforted by that we're eating. The Bible gives us two kinds of example, or not examples, but really waypoints on this. Um, the first is that spiritual taste, being able to spiritually taste God, is actually an exercise of trust. In Psalm 34, verses 8 to 10, David says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him, who, who turn and hide in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people, for those who fear him will have all that they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. In this psalm, it's a funny psalm because David has just played insane in order to avoid death, which is another story for another time. But in this psalm, David highlights a spiritual truth that is repeated throughout the scriptures where he says, we cannot actually taste the goodness of God. We cannot know him as a safe person. We cannot recognize him as steadfast and good and righteous and true if we don't extend a degree of trust first. And the reason for that, and we... we there's a couple more examples, but two powerful ones are in Hebrews 6 and in 1 Peter 2. It's that it kind of hinges on that old adage of you are what you eat. So when we make the cognizant choice to engage with God and believe what he says, whether that's in the scriptures where he's, you know, we're reading directly from him or it's something that we're sensing in our spirit when he's, he's giving us discernment and saying, don't go there or don't do this or trust that or whatever, when we choose to say yes to him in that moment, we are ingesting. It's making a choice that's just like ingesting food. We are ingesting God in that moment to say, I say yes to you. 
You may be like eating kale. I might not like exactly what you're saying. It may not taste super tasty to me the way that this other decision would, but I am choosing to trust that you will nourish my body. And by doing that, you put yourself in a posture or position where God has to come through to take care of you. And when you put yourself in that place, that's how you can experience his comfort. Thing is, we want to experience the comfort of God, but if we don't trust him, if we never put ourselves out there to be vulnerable with him, then how will we experience his love and tenderness for us? We have to be able to put ourselves here and say, Lord, you have to come through and nourish me because if you don't, I don't have another option. And as we put ourselves in that, and that could be through trusting him about relationships or finances. It could be a job decision. It could be the dynamics between, I don't, I don't even know that the situations are endless. We make so many decisions on a day-to-day basis as people, but it's saying in those decisions, God, I'm going to do it your way and not my way. And when we do that, you put yourself in a position for God to work a miracle, to bless you, to speak to you, to provide for you, to take care of you as his child. And that is where you'll taste his goodness. When you've put yourself in that place of being able to say, I am reliant on you right now as the food that I've just ingested in my body. And practically speaking, what could this look like? Practically, it could be doing your Sabbath rest. I know that's a huge one for me where I say, God, I am not just allowed, but I am called to take off a a day every week and not do things because you keep the world spinning, not me. You keep the church going, not me. You keep my family going, not me. As much as I would like to pretend that I am the engine behind all of these things, I am not. And Sabbathing, choosing to do that, puts me in a position to receive God's goodness and watch him work and recognize my own human boundaries and live within them. It could be fasting, which is just this practice of giving up something. It's not always food. It could be social media. It could be drinking. It could be, it could be a variety of things. You can fast from anything. But again, it's that idea of, God, I'm choosing to not do something because I'm waiting for you to be my nourishment in that place. It could be tithing. I've seen, we have so many tithing stories of people who started here at the vineyard and tithing is this idea of giving back a percentage of our income to the Lord, usually your first fruits. And so we've had folks that have started tithing for the first time when they came here, and we've watched them be in really precarious financial situations, which is never something that we're like, oh, yeah, do that. But they're like, I feel like God is asking me to give this amount, and so I'm going to faithfully give it. And we've watched them have apartments. We've watched them get the cars that they've needed. We've watched them get promotions at work that have met the difference. Like, It's amazing to watch when we trust God with what he says and we put ourselves in a position for him to take care of us that that actually allows us to taste his goodness. And so the first piece of tasting God is putting ourselves in a place where we are vulnerable so that God can take care of us. And no one likes to feel vulnerable. We live in a society that says you better be independent, you better do it all yourself, rely on no one, you are your own your army, whatever. And the reality is when we live that way, it makes it very hard to connect and taste God's goodness because we never let down our walls to let him in. And he so desperately wants to carry you. 
He sent Jesus so that you might know that you are loved and you are not alone all the time. So the first piece is that, is putting ourselves in a place of vulnerability. But God also knows that some of us are very tactile people, right? We want to hold something. We want to touch it. We want to like actually ingest something. And I don't know how many of us have ever realized that comfort food, the ultimate comfort food, is communion, right? We talked about comfort foods being the things that we ingest that remind us when we're feeling lonely or sad or dis- like disappointed or disconnected from people, that there is somebody out there who loves us. Comfort food ties us back to people or places where we feel loved and accepted and secure and wanted. And communion is the ultimate comfort food because it is the only food that we can ingest quite literally whenever we want with the Lord that reminds us that God sent his son to tell us that he loves us. Communion is our opportunity to ingest something physically where God says, I came for you that you would never have to walk alone. I came for you to heal the broken parts of your life that you cannot fix. I came for you so that all the disappointments and burdens and sorrows that you carry in life, you realize they're not on your shoulders exclusively. I came to tell you that I love you and I am making all things new. Communion may not be the, you know, it's not a donut. We're not going to pretend that when you eat it, you get this huge serotonin boost, unless you're home, Elisa and Carolina. (laughs) I know that there have occasionally been donuts as communion. But by and large, it's some bread and it's some grape juice. Or if you're in the Catholic Church, it's um, bread and wine. And the reality of that meal is that it is the one meal that we can ingest quite literally whenever God tells us in his word. We don't, honestly, as the Western church, do it enough. We're supposed to do it every time we gather with another follower of Jesus, which means basically every time you have a meal with friends or family who are part of a faith community, we should be pulling out the bread and the juice and celebrating him. Because the reality is this is a constant reminder of how loved you are. When you take this, we we say a lot of things around communion. We read a lot of different scriptures. But the reality was when Jesus instituted communion at the end of his life to next life, with a little transition piece, it was a couple days of transition, what he was doing was saying, I don't ever want you to forget that I came for you. Do not forget the significance of my love as the motivation behind everything. This small meal of bread and juice is the ultimate act of love. And we should receive it as such, where we don't take it as tradition, where we're like, yeah, we're doing the juice thing, it's happening in community or worship again, like, cool, okay. But we realize that when you take these small elements, it is God wrapping his arms around you in that very moment in your day and saying, I see everything about you, and I love you, and I am with you. Do we let the power of communion truly come forward in that moment, or are we just partaking of it because that's what the people around us are doing? I would venture if we let God love us through this meal, it would help to anchor us in the reality that we do have Emmanuel with us. That God is here and he is taking up residence inside of me, which is what he promises in the new covenant. That I'm not just with you, I am with you all the time. You are never going to walk through this life alone. 
there's something so beautiful about how safe God wants you to feel with him. There's something so overwhelming about the fact that some seasons of life we are trudging on the front lines and there are other seasons of life where God just quite literally carries us. He is a good father. And if you are in a season where you need to be held like a newborn child because things are really hard, God loves to do that. He is your Abba. And if you're in a season where God is calling you to step up and lean out and do some hard things, then he is in your corner with you as your father cheering you on. But wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, you are so known and loved. And what God wants you to recognize this morning is that you can find that safety and security you are most hungry for in him. Where he will not just feed your body, but he will feed your soul in a way that no human being will ever be able to do. And he loves to. So we are going to, to do ministry time. We're going to launch ministry time by taking communion this morning together. And then we'll move. We'll just follow the Holy Spirit after that. If you need it, I guess pop a hand up. That would probably be a good start. We'll pass it around. Marcos, you were greeting. <laughs> That's what happens. The cobbler's sh- kids have no shoes. Who, we'll pass it through here. We'll pass it through the rows. No, it's over here. Oh, sorry. There's so much more. I want to encourage you. We're going to take communion right now. I'm going to read the text about where Jesus launched communion, but I would really challenge you to grab another bit of communion before you leave. Take it home. Get with someone this week that you can partake with. Coworker, family member, friend, take communion again this week. And, and even if all you know what to do is simply to say around the dinner table, God, help us to connect with the depth of your love for us. doesn't have to be magical and mystical. You don't need to hear angels singing in your dining room. The idea is to recognize what this is and to allow him to become incarnate with us in that moment. (laughs) Joe's cracking people up. It's fine. Take my serious moment and just... You're fine. You can start to get it ready. We're not going to take it yet. I'm going to read the scripture where Jesus institutes this meal for us, our ultimate comfort food. Uh, Matthew 26, 26 to 28 says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as the sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence to increase. Um, You're already here. Help us to begin to sense your presence in the room right now, God. And as you take the bread, I encourage you, you can put it in your mouth, eat it, whatever. You don't have to hold it in there. (laughs) Um, As you take the bread this morning...
to realize that Jesus is saying, I gave up everything for you. As if you're the only person in the room right now. I gave up everything. I left heaven. I stepped off of a throne. I came as a baby. I went to the cross where I was murdered. And I will rise again and have risen again for you. Holy Spirit, would you just begin to affirm your love for each person in this room? As we take the bread, as we meditate on your body. Would the taste of the wafer become actually a sensory experience where it reminds us, that taste specifically reminds us that we are loved by you. More, Lord. More, Holy Spirit. And as you poured out your blood on the cross, as you became a living sacrifice, not just for the forgiveness of our sins, but the restoration of our souls, making us new creations as you rose from the tomb. May we begin to recognize every time we drink the juice that you are making us new. And where we are hungry for newness we haven't seen yet. That you will not stop until it is finished. The good work that you have started in each person you will bring to completion. And as we drink the juice, as we remember your blood, would we recognize that what you have started you will bring to completion. The healing, the wholeness the restoration of marriages and family and friendships and health and all the broken things we see, God, that as we, as we partake in the juice, you are at work carrying the weight we cannot carry. And may we, as we take it, sense you holding us and being God. I invite you to drink the juice. We're just going to stay in this space and wait on the Holy Spirit. Let that experience just begin to continue speaking. More, Lord. More, Lord, more.
I want to encourage you in this moment to acknowledge, even if you're picturing Jesus in your mind or you're picturing that, him breaking the bread and giving the cup. To imagine him speaking his affirmations of love to you. I see you. I see the weight of the world that you carry on your individual shoulders. I see the joys that you're celebrating and the sorrows that you are still processing. And I am with you in all of it. more Holy Spirit. May your presence, may our awareness of your presence grow right now. May communion become manifest as we recognize that Jesus, you are with me. More Lord. I just bless the peace in the room. I think some of you are feeling really. I imagine some of you just experiencing God's like arm around your shoulder. I think some of you have an easy time of seeing God as father and we bless that. For those of you that that's not an easy image, we bless the friendship of Jesus. If that's an easier on ramp to experiencing him right now. You would just sense his goodness. More, Lord. More. Yeah, we bless it. However you're feeling, respond. Some folks are crying. A lot of you are just under the weight of his glory, and I bless that. Let that peace come. Allow it to become a tangible experience that you can go back to again and again when you need to know that he is with you. Thank you, Lord. More. More. I'm going to pull a John Wimber, and I'm going to hit the brakes on ministry time, even though some of you are having some very lovely moments. I can see it on your faces. Uh, Because what I'd like to do is ask for one or two people to just share what you're experiencing right now because it helps us to hear different people's experiences as we encounter the presence of God in a real way. So if you're comfortable and you'd like to share, just pop a hand up. (laughs) Yeah, Jen, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Super chill. Jen, go for it. Yeah, you are so cozy looking. I'm like, I don't want to interrupt her. She could take a nap. Jesus encourages us to sleep. April, yeah. Reassurance. Yeah. Mm. Sure. 
Right. Good. Yeah, there's a lot of peace in the room this morning. The Holy Spirit was manifesting. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, Barb. Excitement. There's a lot of different. Yes, Vanessa. Clarity. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. I appreciate that. Nice. Well, I want to, like I said, my basket's gone. There are two baskets of communion in the room. I would really encourage you. You do not need to use the communion at church. There's nothing magical and certainly nothing inherently tasty about it. Um, it is pretty bland. But if you have bread at home or you, or if you don't have something you could use to celebrate communion at home, take some with you. Take one or two with you and celebrate it this week with somebody else. And remember that every time you partake in that meal, that God is affirming that he sent Jesus for you out of love. It is a meal prepared in love, delivered in love, and sustained in love. And so every time we celebrate that, it allows us to just be reminded that God is good, and he is with us, and he is delighting to walk through life so that we're not by ourselves. So find a basket, take some if you need some. If you don't, you want to use real bread and juice or wine at home. We bless that.